0: Hey friends! Welcome to the Ridgedale Students Podcast. Ridgedale Student Ministry is a family of middle and high school students at Ridgedale Baptist Church following the way of Jesus together in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you'd like more information on all things RSM, you can find us at ridgedalebaptist.org students or on our social media pages. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you're encouraged by today's teaching. If you ever have this, like people that you associate with specific things, maybe it's an actor or an actress that you've seen them play one role, and that will forever be their persona. For me, like Robert Downey Jr. will never be anything other than Iron Man. Doesn't matter what he does, doesn't matter what movies he makes. Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man. Chris Hemsworth will always be Thor. Just doesn't matter what he does. Um, ben Perez would highly disagree with that. He thinks that Extraction is one of the greatest movies ever. Portland team knows this for sure. Chris Hemsworth is always going to be Thor no matter what he does. Um, when I think about that, I think of people too, like people in my life, stories. There was a kid that was one of our 8th grade boys when I was at the church I was at before this in Oklahoma, and he was absolutely buck wild. Like, he made the 8th grade boys from last year, this year's ninth grade boys look tame. Um, he would do some of the most ridiculous stuff, and I remember one particular thing. We're at camp. It's the first year that I'm there, and we're about four days into camp, and you know you've been to camp before. Four days into camp, it's basically like anarchy. It's martial law, and everything is broken or destroyed or disgusting if you're in the boys' cabin. If you're in the girls' cabin, it's probably pretty normal. But the boys' cabin is like utter chaos. Um, It's like Mad Max. And so I remember walking into the boys' cabin during free time, Walk in the boys' cabin and everything is destroyed. And the first thing that someone comes up to me and says is, Hey, the toilet is clogged. And like again, it's camp, that just happens. Like day one, the toilet was clogged. So I go into the bathroom to inspect the toilet, and indeed, it is the most clogged toilet I've ever seen. It's absolutely disgusting. So I'm like, I'm already on the phone calling the maintenance people to say, hey, you gotta send somebody down here with whatever equipment you have. Because this has to get fixed now because the smell is beginning to emanate throughout the rest of the cabin. And so they're like, all right, cool, we're going to send people. Well, then I realized, like, if they come here, they're going to see that we have absolutely trashed this place. Like, there is a layer about this thick of garbage and clothes and shoes everywhere. So I immediately round the boys up and say, hey, we're going to start cleaning this mess up because we cannot let them see what we've done to their cabins. So they start cleaning in the middle of the cleaning, Jacob comes to me and he says, I've got this great idea. Here's my idea. We don't need maintenance to come unclog the toilet. Because I was cleaning up the bathroom stuff, and I noticed that they had these plastic trash bags. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take one of these plastic trash bags, and I'll just I'll wrap my hand in it, and then we'll take some tape, because they had some tape in there too, and I'm going to just wrap my arm so that it makes a seal. And then here's what I'll do. I'll just reach into the toilet, and I'll pull whatever is in there out. And then the, the toilet's unclogged. And like, y'all have seen me be serious before. I looked at this man straight in the face, and I said, Jacob, that is the worst idea anyone has ever had. Do not do that. And then I went off to do whatever else I had to do to clean. Well, to make a long story short, we get the place cleaned up. And I'm going through, kind of making sure, checking. We've got about two minutes before the maintenance person gets there. And I go into the bathroom and I look, and everything is spotless. And I'm like, yes, thank you, God. Um, Except there was a plastic trash bag in the sink. And in, like, I get hyper focused. I kind of like tunnel vision sometimes into things. And so I look at this plastic trash bag, and in my head, I think, uh, I'm dealing with middle school boys here. I just got to do this myself. So I grab the trash bag and throw it into the trash can. The maintenance person arrives and they're like moving through the crowd of boys to get to the clogged toilet. And they get in there and, they're like, wow, yeah, this is pretty bad. And Jacob emerges from his room and he goes, Yeah, I tried to help you out a little bit, but I couldn't fix the problem. But don't worry, I left my tools in the sink. And it took me a second to really process what had just been said versus what my lived experience was at that point. But you know who caught it before I did? Every other middle school boy that was in the cabin. And so about two seconds after he said that, I said, Jacob, the trash bag is no longer in the sink. And then all of them put it together. And so you just have this mass hysteria of middle school boys screaming and running through the cabin. One of them like runs up to me at one point with Lysol and just starts just spraying every inch of my body forever. Jacob Wood, like right now he works in ministry. He's an intern at the church that I moved here from. Forever, Jacob Wood will be the kid that put the poop-covered trash bag in the sink that I picked out with my bare hands and put in the trash can forever be associated with that. That's how I'll always remember it. We're walking through this series where we're looking at these stories that are our attempts at answering the question, where am I going to find acceptance? We've looked at the story of security. We've looked at the story of success. These stories that tell us that if I can have the most stuff or I can win, if I can be the best person, then people have to naturally accept me. But we look at how the gospel disputes that claim, that accumulation and achievement don't equal Acceptance. That the gospel speaks this better story, that we're actually accepted because we've been adopted into Jesus' family. When he goes to the cross and he brings us to himself, we get ushered into the king's table and we get to sit there, not as like guests or visitors, but as sons and as daughters. We find that we're not accepted through our achievements. What you do is not who you are, that you're accepted because or apart from the things that you achieve. You're accepted on behalf of Jesus' work, on his achievements. Tonight, we look at the story of significance, the last story that we're looking at. And again, it's just an attempt to answer the question, where am I going to be accepted? The story of significance is going to tell us that acceptance comes through adoration. But the more I think about it, here's what I think it really is. That acceptance comes through how people remember me. Acceptance is going to come through how people remember me when my name comes up in conversation. When they see something that I do or when they see something that I post or when I gather up with my friends or when I go out to serve somebody, what's the perception of me? It turns everything into this me-centered, me-focused thing. If I have a lot of followers, then I'll be accepted. If I have a lot of platform, then I'll feel accepted because people have to listen to me. If I'm helpful enough, then people are going to care about me. The story of significance is a broad-spectrum thing, though. Like initially, when I first started kind of planning this out, my brain immediately went to like influencer culture and getting followers and all of this likes and clout and all this stupid stuff. But that really isn't like our our culture. Like most of y'all aren't doing TikTok dances 24 7. I don't see that. But it spans over into the people pleaser, spans over into the person who is the hyper server, who wants to just be there every single time somebody comes to them. It's all about the perception of how people can see and remember me. And so it has these two dimensions of being self-focused, but also of being others-focused. You may be in the room right now, and you see yourself as very others-focused. You can still live this story. You may be in here right now, and you truly are trying to be TikTok famous one day, and that this story is for you. It meets us in a broad spectrum of places. My outline is the same as it's been throughout this whole thing. We're going to look at the story. We're going to look at why it doesn't work, and we're going to look at what the better story is. Before we do that, can we pray? Father, we thank You that You're good and that You reveal stories to us that just do not work. God, we pray, reveal that to us tonight. If that's us, if that's what we're living right now, if we're living for the approval of other people or how they'll remember us, God, free us from that. Release us into a better story. We ask that You do this by Your Spirit, to our good and to Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, what is the story of significance? When we boil it down to its simplest stuff, it's just how mindful are people of me? How will people remember me? How do people think of me? Who's going to be mindful of me? Who's going to think highly of me? A great way to understand this is through this thought pattern. I want people to be mindful of me, so I will do X, Y, Z thing, doesn't matter what it is, in order to gain that mindfulness. That can manifest itself in a ton of different ways, like I already said. That can be you posting constantly on your social media feeds. It could be you liking every single thing that you see from people. It could also be you volunteering every single opportunity you get. It could be you trying to gain as many friends or as many relationships as possible so that people have to be mindful of who you are. See, we see it in the Bible all the time when we look into the Gospels. see it with Jesus' disciples particularly. You look over and over and over again, Jesus' disciples get rebuked because they're constantly asking themselves the question, which one of us is going to be Jesus' favorite? Which one of us is going to be the best? Which one gets to sit at Jesus' right hand? And Jesus constantly turns it back on them and says, no, you have to be a servant. It's not about who gets to be the best. We see it in Peter's worst moment. Peter rebukes Jesus because Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to die. And Peter knows that in Jesus dying, people will stop being mindful of Peter because everyone looks at Peter because they're looking at Jesus. We see it in John the Baptist and his disciples in John chapter 3. They come to John the Baptist and they say, listen, everyone's leaving you and they're going to Jesus. And John has the perfect answer. He says, I must decrease, but he must increase. Look with me at another example that we see in Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. Justin's already read it for us, but I'll read it again. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. Martha is not out of bounds here. Martha is in line with what was culturally appropriate or important during this time. You had to be a good host. You had to serve people well. But why is Martha so driven to get frustrated with Mary? Why does she get frustrated? I don't think it has anything really to do with why Mary isn't serving. Because a lot of times what happens when we pour out or when we serve, if you're an Enneagram 2 in the room, you know this very well. If you're serving and you're pouring out and you're trying to be as available to people as possible and people aren't recognizing that, you turn inward on yourself and you get frustrated. You get angry. You start questioning, why am I doing these things? We don't know what Martha's motivation is. Maybe she was driven to impatience. Maybe the crowds around her didn't acknowledge the things that she was doing. Maybe Jesus didn't have the response that she was hoping for. Maybe it really was. with stress and anxiety, and she just had this beef with Mary, and that kind of expressed itself in this moment. But whatever it is, we know for sure this, that when we live out of the story of significance, we're living for a longing of recognition and adoration. If you're living for the approval of other people, then you crave recognition from those people and for them to think highly of you. I think this is where Martha's at. She wants the people that she's serving to acknowledge her service. She wants Jesus to point out, man, look at how good Martha is. And as he's not doing that, she's looking at her sister sitting on the ground at the feet of her rabbi, and she's asking the question, why is he not saying something to her? So we want to be loved and accepted, and we don't care if that comes through fame or through sacrifice, through celebrity or through servanthood. If we're living out of the story of significance, we desire, we long for recognition and adoration. Man, it's a hard story to maintain, isn't it? Maybe you're the hyper-server in here. Maybe you're the person who loves to people-please. It gets exhausting, doesn't it? Like You get worn out from trying to constantly be the thing that everyone else wants you to be. Jesus offers a better word to us. He offers a word on why this doesn't work here in the text. So why doesn't it work? I think the first thing we see is that the story of significance doesn't work because it places your value in other people's opinions. It doesn't work because it places your value in another person's opinion of what you're doing. We can see this on multiple levels. We can see this in the way that people with a thousand followers are, are consumed with what the comment section says. If comments are positive, then man, everything's great. But if one comment appears that's negative, we have to block it out. We have to scrub it from the memories of the world because we can't stand to see the negativity. But it can go all the way down to just one relationship with one person and that person not reciprocating the things that we desire to see. We long for people's approval. It's a bad story because it places our value in the hands of another person. In John 3, we see John the Baptist's disciples come to him, and they're panicking, they're stressed, they're asking the question, what are you going to do? Because the following that we had is leaving and they're going to somebody else. But we also see it in Martha's response. I'm frustrated because my one sister or the crowd of people that's in my house or just you, Jesus, isn't acknowledging the thing that I'm doing. I want that acknowledgement. I want people to be mindful of me. See, the story of success leaves us vulnerable to an identity crisis because it's fed by the attention of other people who are not reliable value system indicators. Other people can't tell you how important you are. Other people don't determine your worth. May not have heard that before. I'll tell it to you for the first time. The people that you're around at school, the people that you live with in your home, the people that you interact with on social media do not set the standard of your value. Here's how worth and value is established. Worth is given by a creator and by the links that your creator is willing to go in order to have his creation. You have a creator. What are the links that your creator went to to establish relationship with his creation? He gives us something. He sacrifices the thing that's most dear, closest to him, in order to have you. Your worth is established by your creator and by the links that he is willing to go to maintain that connection. A question that we might ask ourselves then is, is my day good or bad based off the way that people respond to me? If you think this might be you, how does your day go if someone says something negative about something you do? How do you feel after somebody praises the things you do, but one person makes a negative comment? How do you take constructive criticism? Good point, Linux. The second reason I think that this doesn't work is because your story of significance will never make you enough. It yeah. won't. Here's the thing. Here's this is me maybe reading a little bit too much into the text. But here's what I think. Martha is doing so much because Martha thinks that in doing enough stuff, once Jesus comes to her and acknowledges that, rather than Mary getting called the good portion, Martha gets to be called the good portion. Because Martha was the host. Martha worked the hardest. Martha cooked the food. Martha cleaned the house. Martha made sure that everybody's drink was full. Martha made sure that all the pillows and the cushions were out on the ground so that nobody had an uncomfortable seat. And at the end of it all, Martha's vision is towards Jesus coming to her and saying, Martha, because of your hard work, you are the good portion. You're enough. And that's not the way that Jesus works. It's never been the way that we see Jesus work. In the Gospels, and Scripture, in any written literature about Jesus, Jesus does not base our worth or our value on what we bring to the table for Him. And so as we live out of the story of significance, we're living a story that tells us that if we do enough stuff, that we will be enough. And Jesus is looking at His people and He's saying, you're already enough. I purchased you with my blood. I sacrificed my body. I gave everything for you. Why would you not be enough if you didn't do stuff? So? question for us to maybe ask ourselves if we're living out of this place is, am I serving or doing or acting or working from a place of love or out of a desire to be enough? Friend, maybe you're in the room tonight, and you're serving out of a desire that someone one day will affirm your effort and your work, and they'll tell you that you're enough. Or you're feeding into a black hole. You will never find the satisfaction that you're looking for in your work or in your service because you've placed it into someone's hand who doesn't know what they actually need. And Jesus is standing there the entire time saying, I've told you you're enough. You didn't have to do anything to be enough. You were mine in the beginning. You don't have to work for my acceptance. The last thing I think we see is that the story is significant. Doesn't work because it's inconsistent. Listen, I love storytelling. Storytelling is one of my favorite things. But stories have to have some elements that are consistent, they have to have some things that are predictable. Every story has to have a protagonist and an antagonist. You can't just have a happy story where everybody's good and there's no tension. You need tension in order to make a good story. You've got to have a climax, you've got to have a resolution. You can't just end a story by saying, and then they stormed into the castle. And whoop dee doo. That's not how a good story is told. You need certain things that are consistent and predictable in a story in order for it to be a good, reliable story. What happens then is an inconsistent story is a vulnerable story. A vulnerable story creates insecure people. You live in a story where you're seeking acceptance from other people, you're living in a vulnerable, volatile story that at the slightest change, At the least amount of recognition, at no recognition at all, at the criticism, at someone not even saying the right kind of affirmation of you. You crumble and you fall to pieces because you've built your story on something that just cannot be consistent. And here's the thing, I love vulnerability. Y'all know me, Perry McBride is keeping a running track of how many times he sees me cry when I preach. Vulnerability is a good thing. Vulnerability is a beautiful thing, but vulnerability is only a good thing in a safe space. And vulnerability can only have a safe space because it needs the consistency of a friend and not a fan base. You don't seek consistency. You don't seek affirmation from fans. You seek it from a friend. You seek it from somebody who knows you better than you know yourself. You seek it from a creator. You seek it from someone who sacrifices for you. The question maybe to ask ourselves at this moment is, am I consistently worried about fitting my personality to the group of people I'm around? Do I constantly have to roll switch, to code switch a little bit and change the way that I talk in one space or the way that I make a joke in another space or the way that I dress in another space, the things that I talk about, the language that I use? Are we constantly having to be aware, and worried about how people will perceive us based off of the setting that we're in? Guys, this series has all been about directing our attention to a secure story, and so it's time to once again look at the better story. Back in Luke 10, verses 38-42, through here's the thing. Martha gets all of the airtime in this story. Mary gets one verse. Jesus gets a little bit of dialogue here, but most of the story focuses on Martha. It's her work, it's her doing, it's her effort, and then it's her coming to Jesus, complaining, saying, why aren't you telling my sister to do more stuff? But the person that teaches us the most in this story is Mary. Here's what I think Mary teaches us. I think she gives us a handful of freedoms. She offers us some freedoms that are the perfect antidote to the story of significance. First thing I think she does is she offers us the freedom to focus. Mary frees us to focus. When Jesus went anywhere, if you read the Gospels, Jesus went anywhere. It was chaos. Like you look at all the crowds and the people that are gathering around Jesus, it's madness. And it's all the same here. We see it because Mary is flustered. She's doing all of this work to try and be enough, to try and get everything in order. She's working and working and working and working. It's chaos. And rather than responding to the chaos in the way that every single other person does, here's what Mary does. She focuses her attention on the most important thing in the room, being present to Jesus. 17th century... French theologian Francois Fenelon said this that the presence of God calms the soul and gives it quiet and repose. Just throwing it out there, does anyone feel like you have a quiet soul right now? Does your soul feel quiet or does it sound like a Lint Biscuit concert at twelve o'clock at night? we have a quiet soul. Mary here frees us to focus on the one place that gives us the quiet soul. second thing I think we see is that Mary frees us to rest. Mary frees us to rest. You look at everybody moving around, and what's Mary doing? She's sitting on the ground at the feet of her teacher. St. Augustine of Hippo had this really famous quote. He said, You have created us for yourself, and our heart is not quiet until it rests in thee. Everyone is busy trying to do something in the presence of Jesus. And then there's Mary, quietly, calmly, reflectively listening and attentive to her rabbi. She's resting in His presence because she knows that she doesn't have to do the most stuff or be the best student or to even be the smartest person in the room. She simply needs presence to Jesus, and in that she finds rest. Maybe your natural response a lot of times is to go straight to action. Maybe you're a type A person. When the question comes up or when the problem needs to be solved, your immediate response is, I'm going to act. I'm going to go to busyness. I'm going to go to activity in order to be acknowledged by people. The effort at this point is just wearing you down. All the responsiveness, all the action, all the taking charge, all the leading out from the front, all of that has just left you fried. Jesus' offer to his disciples, to people who apprentice under Jesus, is to offer you the blessing of simply coming to rest with him. The last thing I think Mary does is she frees us to contentment. Another thing that people often did with Jesus is they would come to Jesus and they would seek for him to affirm something about them. They wanted him to be impressed with them. You see it in the story that we talked about last week, where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Listen, what do I have to do to gain heaven? What do I have to do to get into the kingdom, Jesus? We just have to follow all the commandments. Sweet, I did all that. Aren't you so impressed? Jesus' response is not impression, but it's Him offering a teaching moment that leaves the man walking away sad because he hasn't inherited the thing that he wanted. We never see Jesus work like this. I already said it once, but we never see Jesus work on this give-me-what-I-want basis. We're constantly seeing Jesus offer up teaching, offer up peace, offer up space to rest, offer up simplicity, offer up something that's so simple and yet so difficult for us to grasp. What did Mary want? What was Mary after in just sitting at the feet of her teacher? Was she after acknowledgement or power or responsibility or status? No. Mary was content to be with her teacher because it was all that Jesus had ever required of his apprentices. Go back and look at the way that Jesus taught the disciples. Jesus was never asking something of them. He was always looking for them to just be still enough to listen to what he was teaching them and then go and live it out to So many of us think that we are taking a master class with Jesus, where at the end of it, we're supposed to be the greatest disciple in the world. Or we're supposed to be the most accomplished. Or where we write the books, or we preach the sermons, or we love people the best, or we evangelize the best, or we're the coolest person in our school because we love Jesus so well. Maybe Jesus is just telling you to be still long enough to listen to what He's having to say. Maybe He's calling you to just be content with where you're at and not seek to impress people or to impress Him, but to just be. Just be with Him. Jesus doesn't want your stuff so He can promote you. Jesus is not doing performance evaluations. He wants your joy to be in Him so that rather than seeking the promotion or the approval that other people offer or that even we think we get from Him, that we can be transformed from the inside out so that we can be a radical people of love who have the stillness and the patience and the contentment to just sit and be with Him. George MacDonald inspired a lot of what C.S. Lewis wrote. And George MacDonald had this to say when he was asked what he would be if he could be anything in the world as a disciple of Jesus. He said, I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature I could think of. For to have been thought about To be born in God's thought and then made by God is the dearest and the grandest and the most precious thing in all thinking. He just wanted to be what God made him to be. Are you content to just be what God made you to be? Are you content to be a person who's content enough to just be with Jesus? To do what He did? To be like Him? Are you content enough to just be that? Or do you want the fame? Do you want the spotlight? Do you want the recognition? Y'all, again, I'm going to tell y'all, like I tell you so, so often, I say this from a place of deep imperfection so many times. I get up and I teach you guys, and I teach you from a place of, man, I really hope that somebody comes after you and says, wow, that was a good sermon. It was a good sermon, Brother Chris. It was really good stuff. I learned a lot. I'm going to take that and I'm going to apply it, and that was good stuff. Because it seeds. This desire for approval. Y'all, you aren't the only ones living these stories. I'm living these stories alongside you. Your leaders, when you go into small times, are living these stories right next to you. This isn't something that's just reserved for you. These are things that all of us live. I long for approval. I long for security. I long for success. And Jesus is trying to teach me as much as He's trying to teach you. I just need to be content in being with Him. That's the goal. See, the story of significance tells you that you have to gain acceptance to the adoration, to the remembrance, to whatever it is of people that they can offer you. And here's the thing. God created you for the opposite of that. He created you to adore Him out of a place of acceptance that he gave you your value and he gave you your worth and he called you to himself and because he's called you to himself you now don't worship other people so that you can gain their affection you worship God because he has given you his affection that's what we do you were made to adore Jesus to worship him with your life because he called you worthy to be a son or to be a daughter so a wrap-up. I've gone way too long, but oh well. There's a shadow side to every story. Every story has a shadow side. We talked about this last week in the positive and the negative script that you see in the story of security. We both long for acceptance, but I think even more, some of us have this deep, deep fear of rejection. If I open myself up to people, they're going to look at me and they're going to say, you're not worth my time. You're not worth my effort. You're not worth my energy. Why don't you go be with somebody else who maybe is less than me so that maybe they can match your worth? We live sometimes from either this light side story or this shadow story that tells us that either we should desire the approval or that we should run from the rejection. But here's the thing. This story offers us something. It offers us the perspective to ask ourselves the question, if other people can't establish My value, then who can? And the answer to that question is God. He's your Creator. He's your Sustainer. He's the One who purchased you back by His Son's blood. So what does He say about you? What does God say about you? I want us to just kind of like take a moment to to drain the distraction from the room. Close your eyes, and I want you to just I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine for a moment when God is asked about Grace Rainey, when God is asked about Aaron Steele, when God's asked about Caden Mills or Tia Eves or Cooper McGraw or Perry McBride, what does God have to say about you? All of us have these moments where we have this dialogue within ourselves that's either good, for the positive, or that's bad, and for the negative. Where we imagine that God has a script that He's put together on the fly. It's not based off of what He's already said or what He's already revealed to us in Scripture. It's based off of our performance, or it's based off of what we've accumulated, or it's based off the success that we have. We have this dialogue where we're telling ourselves, this is the script that God put together for me. It's the script for Chris Frakes. It's the script for Izzy Lamb. It's the script for Kennedy Simpson. What is that script? What's that script that you hear when you think about what God has to say about you? Friends, the Scriptures will always speak a better word. And so as you continue to just remain focused and undistracted, closed eyes around the room, I want you to hear. I want you to hear what God's Word says about you in particular from the people that invest in you. As this is the affirmation that God's Word speaks over you tonight. You are loved. You are seen. You're known. He knits you together in His mother's womb In your mother's womb. God desires relationship. If you forget every other thing from tonight, hear this. This is the last point I want to make. That God desires relationship with you more than any other person will. And He has done the work necessary to ensure that that relationship will last. As we show up to Him in adoration and worship, not because we're seeking approval, not because we're working to be enough, but because He has brought us into His home in love. Pray with me.